You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good to see you, everybody. If you're guests with us, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. Before we jump back into this passage, which is just such a rich text that we're going to be looking at, I do want to direct a little bit of traffic, kind of play air traffic control here for a minute. Uh, We are less than two weeks away from Good Friday and Easter, and so um, that's always such an exciting time in the life of the church, and especially this local church. I want to invite you to join us on Good Friday. We'll gather at 5.30 p.m. here in this room on Good Friday. Make plans to join us. We'll be gathering together with our two church plants, Redeemer Georgetown and Redeemer Hutto. They're going to be uh, coming back in and meeting with us, so that'll be fun to be back together with those guys. And uh, it's going to be a great time to look at and reflect upon the cross of Christ and all that that means for us as, um, as simple people. And then on Easter Sunday, uh, Easter's a great day, okay? It's, obviously, it's a great day. It's a day that we remember and celebrate that Jesus is risen, that he's alive. But it's also a day, it's been a tradition for us that we, we celebrate baptisms on Easter. So um, we'll, be, we'll be baptizing people on Easter Sunday like we always do. If you are interested in being baptized... Uh, let us know. We'd love to, uh, to help you with that. If, if, even if you're a parent and maybe you have a child that is ready to be baptized as professed faith, let us know. Next Sunday, right after the gathering, we'll be having a baptism info meeting. Uh, and so if that's you, if you want to be baptized on Easter Sunday, um, make sure that you sign up for that, cl- that baptism info meeting on the app, or you can stop by the resource table on the back and let us know that you plan to be there next week. And then um, last thing about Easter. So I mean, Jesus is alive. We remember that. We celebrate that every week, but especially on Easter, we'll celebrate baptisms. But Easter is also, uh, the, uh, we celebrate our anniversary as a church. We launched this church on Easter of 20. 12. So that means this Easter we're celebrating 10 years as a church, and that's going to be a great day. We're just going to reflect on all that God has done over 10 years um, on, on Easter Sunday. So make plans to be here, invite some friends, some neighbors. It's going to be a great, a great weekend um, in, in, two, in two weeks. Okay, back to our text today, Mark chapter 2. We're looking at verses 13 through 17. And in this uh, section of Mark, Jesus is continuing to make himself known to the crowds. If you've been with us the last few weeks, We've seen that Jesus uh, has been um, making it clear who he is. He has been teaching, so he's been declaring who he is in word, and he has also been declaring, revealing who he is in deed. So he's making uh, known who it is that he is in word and in deed. And last week, we saw Jesus reveal that he indeed has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And this was, this was a stunning claim, but Jesus demonstrates this claim by, by raising a paralytic man. He tells him, take up your mat and walk. And as we pick up today on the heels of this scene in chapter 2, verse 13, we have Jesus again before the crowds, Jesus teaching the crowds, and, and he actually has more to say. He has more to reveal about who he is. Remember, this is what Mark is most interested in. So as we come to Mark, Mark is most interested in revealing to us who Jesus is. For us to come face to face with him, that we might make a decision about this man, Jesus. Who is he? And what Jesus is going to reveal to us about himself in our text today, I just want to tell you up front, for some of you, what Jesus is going to show us about himself, it's going to really comfort you this morning. It's going to comfort you. The Spirit wants to comfort you and remind you of the heart of Jesus. But for others, it might, it might bring some discomfort for you. 
as we look at who Jesus truly is, what his heart is really like. It might create some tension. In fact, Jesus is going to bring into view for us a very simple question. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. A very simple question that Jesus brings in view this morning, and it's this. How do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? I want you to think about that for a minute. In fact, if your view of yourself is not changed by Jesus, unless your view of yourself is changed by Jesus, then you will not experience intimate fellowship with him. In fact, there are two kinds of people in this world, and I'm not talking about Democrats and Republicans. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who view themselves positively, and there are people who view themselves negatively, okay? Maybe even just me saying that. There's like people who you're kind of proud of who you are, you know, like I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Um, yeah, maybe I've made some mistakes, but for the most part, I'm on the right track. I'm pretty proud of the life that I've made for myself. And then there's people who view themselves negatively. They experience, when they think about them, yourself, you think about your life, maybe there's a little bit of shame. And, and maybe even just me saying that, like the Spirit has already kind of helped sorting us here, you know, like the little hat in Harry Potter. Like he's already kind of sorting us. Like there's two kinds of people in the world. You view yourself positively, you view yourself negatively. And I want to just dial into this a little bit before we get back into the text. I want us to think about this. I mean, how does one become a person that views himself with some pride, positively? Well, typically, this kind of person has managed to kind of make it through life, uh, meeting expectations, expectations of themselves, expectations of others, maybe expectations of society at large. Like, you, you know, you went to school and you did the grades, you got the grades, and Everybody was pretty proud of that. You were pretty proud of that. Maybe, maybe uh, you, got it, you, you know, did the college thing and you made it through college and some of you just made it, but then you got the job you've always wanted. Others of you, you didn't just make it. You like excelled. You, know, you were uh, whatever they call that, cum laude thing. I'm not, I wasn't, I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with that. But uh, you know, that was you and you're, you're extra proud of that. And you didn't just get the job. I mean, you've like excelled at the job. You know, maybe you, know, you avoided to to, uh, to get into that relationship with that person that you probably shouldn't be in. And, you know, you, you married Mr. Right or Mr. Wrong. And, you know, you know you, you've made some mistakes, sure. But kind of like um, the video game Frogger. You guys remember that game? Like you, you kind of, you, you made some mistakes, but you were able to kind of dodge, you know, and make it through and not get splatted or smashed by the consequential, natures, uh, consequential nature of the mistakes that you made. And you feel pretty good about it. I mean, when you compare yourself to other people, you feel a bit a sense of pride. Now, the, the other person, the, the negative person, views yourself a bit negatively. I mean, how does one become that person? Well, it's a lot of the opposite, right? I mean, you, maybe you feel like you didn't meet the expectations. You haven't met expectations of yourself or of maybe of your family or of society at large. Maybe, you know, you think about your life and you're like, if I just kind of would have you know, married that other person, maybe things would be a little bit different. Or if I would have, you know, if I, if I just would have, you know, taken that job and, and gone down that path. Or maybe you didn't, you weren't so fortunate and, you know, dodged the consequential natures of your mistakes. Maybe they actually splatted you. And you think about your life and there's a bit of shame. There's a bit of shame about who you are and where you are. In fact, when you compare yourself to other people in your life stage, your peers, you feel a little bit inadequate or inferior. See, our text today is clear that no matter who we are, which of those people we are, no matter how we view ourselves positively with pride, negatively with shame, Jesus has come to us to change it. He has come to you to change the way you view yourself. In fact, you cannot and will not experience 
intimate fellowship with him until you begin to see yourself differently. See yourself the way he sees you. Let's pick up in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Stop for a minute. The last time that Mark gives us a picture of Jesus teaching by the seaside, it was when he called Simon and Andrew, James and John out of their boats and into discipleship. And again, it's a very similar scene, but this time Jesus calls a tax collector who is named Levi. Now, I just want to say this, just kind of as a bonus points here. Um, this is Matthew. So, we, we, you know, we have the gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew, the gospel writer. In Mark's gospel, he is referred to as Levi. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew says, yeah, it's me. Call me Matthew. Uh, maybe some of you are like that, like my wife's name. Oh, I'm not going to tell you. She doesn't like people to know her real name. But she goes by a nickname of her middle name. You know, it's not even her middle name. She goes by a nickname of her middle name. And so this is, this is likely the situation here. Um, this is Matthew. I just want you to know that. And it appears that Jesus has just finished another sermon. And as he's walking away, the crowds are still following him. He sees Levi on the job doing his work as a tax collector. And he sees him and he says to him, follow me. Now, just as a, a quick recap, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at the, the calling of the fishermen. But um, discipleship in Jesus' day, it was an invitation to apprentice under a teacher of Israel's law. And so it was a, an invitation to come and learn their way. Come and, come and learn their particular interpretations of God's law and of Israel's custom, kind of their specific flavor of what God is up to in the world through his chosen people, Israel. So come and learn from me. Come and not just learn from me, but live like me. Come learn and live the way of your teacher. And so he's in, they're invited here, come and learn and live the way of Jesus. Come into discipleship under Jesus. And so Jesus calls Levi out of his tax booth and into discipleship, and Levi follows him. Now, there are two things that would have stunned people in Jesus' day about what just happened here in the text, and I want to deal with both of them, and here's the first one. The first one is the immediate, drastic leaving behind of his occupation to follow Jesus. That would have been stunning, okay? When, when the, the crowds that are around that are seeing this happen, which, by the way, we, we've seen so far Jesus is always teaching and then demonstrating what he's teaching. And I think that's likely probably what's happening again here. And we could probably infer that whatever it is that Jesus has been just teaching about by the seaside to these crowds, he's now demonstrating through the calling of a tax collector to come and be his disciple. We'll get to that more in a minute. But there's a drastic and immediate leaving and following of Jesus. And we need to understand that tax collectors were very wealthy people, all right? This is a man with money, a lot of money, that Jesus calls, who just leaves a very lucrative job behind to follow a, um, um, a rabbi from Nazareth. This is stunning. In fact, maybe you've heard the saying that it takes money to make money. Anybody heard that saying? Yeah, of course, yeah. It takes money to make money. Well, that was true in Jesus' day. That was true of tax collectors. Um, it, not only did tax collectors make a lot of money, but it actually required that they were wealthy to even get into that work in the first place. 
um, the Jewish people had their land occupied by Rome, and, and Rome heavily taxed all of their colonies as a way to kind of booster, uh, boost their material power and their political power. And so what they did is they, in, they enforced this taxation uh, heavily, and they, infor- and they did it by enlisting uh, uh, people from among their own people to come in and do this work of tax farming or tax harvesting. And the way it worked was that they would, uh, Rome would, would bid out this work to the highest bidder, all right? So a tax collector, they would come looking for tax collectors, and they would bid it out, the highest bidder. So Levi's probably like, you know, they're like, anybody, can we go 1 million, 1.1? You know, like, and they're going, it's probably not how it's really working. But they're bidding it out. Levi, Levi has the money to put up, to pay as an advance to Rome. And then now what he gets to do is go around and collect the toll collect tax, basically make it back. And so this is what's happening. And so again, this required that you were wealthy to be in this position in the first place. It was a lucrative job, yet we are told here that Matthew leaves it behind to become an apprentice of Jesus. And this leads us, before we move any further, to an important truth that we talked about a few weeks ago that we need to hear again, that there is no becoming a disciple of Jesus if you are not willing to leave behind what you were before. What, what were you before Jesus called? What were you before? What did you build your life on or find your identity in? For Levi, it was money and power. For the fishermen, it was work and family. What is it for you? See, discipleship to Jesus, it demands a reorientation of your life. This is a demand. There is a demand to Jesus' call. There was no following Jesus for Levi and remaining in the tax booth. Yet, even though there is this demand to the call of Jesus, the text points out to us that there's just something about Jesus. There's something that's so beautiful, so worthy, so true, so much better that Levi leaves behind wealth and security and power in order to be with Jesus. And I want you to know that Jesus has been doing this for 2,000 plus years. He has been calling people into discipleship, and billions of people across the world have seen that he is true, that he is better. They've abandoned the things of the world that they had previously staked their life on in order to follow him and find their new life in him. And I think that there is, it's possible that there might be some of us in the room this morning that are maybe kind of wondering like, Why is it that there is not much intimacy in my relationship with Jesus? Why is it that it seems that perhaps my sanctification has slowed, if not all out stopped? Why is it that it feels like there's no breakthroughs in my life? And the answer might be, might be, because you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can't worship God and comfort. You can't serve Jesus and family. You can't live for God and yourself. You see, the call of Jesus into discipleship is a call into intimate fellowship that gives new life, that gives new identity, and it requires abandoning the old. And Levi does it. Levi leaves behind what he was before and what he lived for before, money and power, in order to be with Jesus. And this would have been shocking to people in Jesus' day, but there's more. There's more shock to what happens as Jesus calls a tax collector out of his booth and into discipleship. Not only were tax collectors incredibly wealthy, but they were absolutely despised. They were despised. They were were hated by their their fellow people. 
by their peers. And this is important because knowing how tax collectors were viewed by others might help us let us in a little bit on how Levi might have viewed himself, which one of those two people he might have been. You see, tax collectors were seen as sellouts and as traitors. In 63 BC, uh, Pompey the Great marched in with the mighty Roman army into Jerusalem, and they took uh, control over Israel, and they began to occupy them as a people. They set up puppet kings and puppet governors. They even uh, set up and appointed, the Romans did, high priests who would kind of be in their pocket. And then they found uh, people from among Israel, people that loved money and power, who would work as tax collectors. You know, we're actually getting a little bit of an idea of what this might have been like in Jesus's day for the nation of Israel when we see what's happening in, in Ukraine right now, right? I mean, what, 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 was it that, what is it that Russia is attempting to do, attempting to come into Ukraine and, and through kind of their military power, take over land and take over people and set up a puppet government and rule over them and take their identity from them and their land from them and completely change their way of life? And this is what the Romans did to God's people to Israel. And so this actually helps us a bit imagine how the Jewish people felt about Rome, especially how those among God's people would have felt about those who worked for Rome, who collaborated with Rome, especially those who, for whatever reason, made the decision in life to not just work for Rome, but then to exploit their own people, especially the less fortunate among their own people, while they were helping Rome. And this is what tax collectors were doing. I want to read you a quote from a biblical scholar, Wendy uh, Ruschling. Listen to what she said about, about the work of tax collectors in Jesus' day. She says, Not only were goods taxed by Rome, but additional amounts, often in large sums, were added to pay the commissions of tax collectors, which created a form of institutionalized robbery. So they had the power, and they had Roman soldiers in their back pocket. Remember, they kind of paid Rome in advance, and now they're coming back, and they're collecting and making their money, and you, they kind of charge you and take more from you, and, oh, yeah, I kind of see your fish coming in the port. Eh, yeah, it should be this much, but now it's really going to be this much a tax. Oh, you don't want to pay it, Roman soldiers? You know, and this is what tax collectors were, were doing. She goes on, she says, tax collectors collected more for themselves than was required by Rome. The system thrived on dishonesty, exploitation, overcharging, and abuse of those being taxed, which lined the pockets of these tax collectors. It is no wonder that tax collectors were universally reviled, were viewed as the worst of all sinners, and were often characterized as unclean by religious leaders as well as were those who associated with them. Do you see what they were doing to God's people, how they might have felt about them, what you're doing to God's people, to the enemy. And, and much of Israel was expecting the Messiah to come and wage war against Rome and overthrow Rome and lift them up. And so here are these tax collectors. Surely God feels about them the same way that we feel about them. They're friends of the enemy. They're the scum of the earth. They're the utmost of sinners. And so we must understand that this is Matthew. He is not admired. He is not respected because of the decision that he's made in his life to choose money and power over people, especially his own people, even his own lineage, this is something that no one would have been truly proud of. So I want to ask you, how do you think Matthew likely viewed himself, negatively or positively? Do you think Matthew kind of beat his chest and walked around with pride, or do you think he carried a deep sense of shame 
and his soul. I mean, I want you to just try and imagine a life of being despised. I want you to try and imagine a life of sensing your failure. You know, once you make that choice to be a tax collector, you can't really go back. Do you see this? You can't really go back once you make that choice. You're, you're, you're invested. You're invested financially. You've already been ousted a bit socially. You have a lot of money, sure, but what does that do for you when you've lost friends, when you've lost your family, all respect due to your choices? What does that kind of shame do to a person? What does that kind of shame do to the human soul? I want you to imagine that shameful existence. And I know that it's possible that there are some of you that don't even have to imagine it. There are some of you that shame is a very real part of your story every single day. I want you to not miss what is so clear in the text. If this is you. Don't miss what the text is screaming at us, that Jesus sees Matthew. He truly sees him. Jesus sees the shamed, and he says to him, you are the one I want. You are the one that I want to be with. I want you to be with me. See, if you're here this morning and you are that kind of person, the person that views yourself negatively, the person that has a soul that is a bit soaked with shame, will you please see this Jesus? Will you see this Jesus? See, the good news of the gospel is that God has come near to those who have blown it. God has come near to those whose choices have negatively shaped their life, those who feel dismissed or overlooked, those who sense that they are unqualified, those who are busted and bruised. Jesus loves you. He loves the lowly at heart. The tax collector is the person that no one in their family is really proud of, yet this is the person that Jesus desires to keep company with. Will you hear me for a minute? Jesus is not ashamed of you, if this is you. He is not ashamed of you. In fact, it seems that Jesus is mostly drawn to these kind of people, isn't it? I mean, have you been reading Mark with me? This is the kind of person that Jesus is mostly drawn to. It's the person he desires, uneducated fishermen that are in over their head, sick and suffering, the leper and the lame, and now a tax collector. Mark is saying, see the real Jesus. Who is he drawn to? Who does he love? See, Jesus has come to call broken people out of sin, and he's come to call broken people out of shame. Out of sin and out of shame, and into new life, into discipleship. You see, this is the good news of Jesus. And some of you, I hope, are feeling the comfort of Jesus from this text. That Jesus has come to lift up the lowly. But it's not just the shameful that we're introduced to in this text. There's more. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many tax collectors and sinners who followed him. Now, this is likely that they are at Matthew's house. It appears that Matthew has gathered up his co-workers, other people who are kind of the outcasts, the other more kind of negative people, you know, that view themselves with shame. They don't really have 
a social life. I want you to just for a minute before we move on, I want you just to imagine how being with Jesus around this table would have immediately begun to change the way these people view themselves. I mean, just think about this. Just the sheer presence of being with Jesus. And don't miss the theological implications of this either. I mean, Jesus is the divine God in flesh, the divine holy God taking on flesh, yet he is so comfortable with people like this. Maybe for some of us, the, the kind of people that we wouldn't be comfortable with even kind of being seen with, Jesus is so comfortable reclining at the table with them, sharing intimate fellowship with them. It's telling us something about a theological reality about God that he at his heart is a redeemer. That's what he is. Yet his holiness is never diminished as he's with these people. I bet they can't get over the visible love of of Jesus for them. I mean, when was the last time that someone who was not a tax collector treated them like a friend? I bet they just can't get over it. Like, what is this guy doing with us? This is so cool. See how Jesus all of a sudden begins to change the way we view ourselves. I remember one time when I was in college, I got invited with a, a friend who grew up in a wealthy family to come to a dinner with them at a country club. And I, like a small town rural kid, and I'm like, where am I? You know, I might get used to this. Country club life, you know, that's interesting. Think, think about what this must have felt like to be lifted up into Jesus' presence as they are sharing a meal. This guy is famous. He has, a, he, does, he has authority. He does mighty works. He's renowned. Everyone's coming out to see him and follow him. What is he doing here with us? You see, this is why Jesus has come, to lift up the lowly, to rid shame from the human soul, and to bring negative viewing people into relationship with him to change the way they view themselves. Yet it, this isn't beautiful for everyone. There are some people who are watching all of this, who take, watching all of this take place and they can't believe it and they begin to grumble. It's not just the negative people, in other words, that Jesus has come to change. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat? with tax collectors and sinners. And when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I, I love the way Mark gives us this because it wastes no time. Jesus wastes no time here. It's like, it's, it's, it's almost like he's like, I'm primarily, uh, I primarily, primarily need to teach a lesson to these people. It's going to take longer for them to learn that they are lovable and that I've come to change the way they view themselves and lift them up to see their value in me. It's not going to take quite as long. I'm just going to dagger to your heart over here, you know, to the other people. I love this. He wastes no time. He puts it bluntly. Jesus says, uh, he basically says to them, just as you would expect a doctor to be working among sick people, you should expect to find the Savior among those who need to be saved. And, he, and he's saying here that the difference is, is that there are, there's one kind of person that's aware of their need of salvation. And then there's another kind of person that thinks they've already found it, thinks that they're pretty good on their own. And he's essentially saying to these Pharisees, he's saying your way to salvation is not God's way. You think it is, but it's not. Fervently observing the law and keeping the customs is not the way to salvation in the kingdom of God. He's essentially saying to them that the way to salvation in the kingdom of God is a humble heart and a contrite spirit. That's the way. You see, these Pharisees lived as if they had it all figured out, and it was their job to help everyone else catch up so that God would save Israel. That was their job. 
We've got it figured out. We're living the right way. Everybody else catch up so that God will come and save us. In other words, what he's saying to them here in such a blunt, quick, sharp way is that the way you view yourself must also change. And so I want to say to you, if you're here this morning and you're one who views yourself positively, by nature, you view yourself with a little bit of self-pride. You feel pretty good about who you are and what you've done in life. Jesus says, if you too want to come to the table, if you too want to enter into intimate fellowship and communion with me, then you also need to see and acknowledge your need. He's essentially saying to the negative person, would you see your value? Would you see how valuable you are to God? And to the positive person, would you see your need for me, your real true need, the interior need for me? I want you to hear me this morning, that there are some of us here who have lacked obedience and wisdom in in your life, and you need salvation. And there are others here that have lacked humility and mercy in your life, and you need salvation. That both kinds of people are sick. Jesus says, I have come for the sick. I have come for those who admit their need, those who see their true selves. There are two kinds of people. There are two kinds of sinners. There are religious sinners. There are irreligious sinners. And both are welcome into fellowship with God when they humbly see themselves, their need for Jesus, and receive his mercy. And so as we close this morning, I want to ask you the same question that I started with. How do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? See, your view of yourself this morning, negatively or positively, unless it is changed by Jesus, will keep you from the intimate fellowship and communion that that you're invited to. And there's one more thing. See, when Jesus begins to change the way we view ourselves, when we get out of our shame, when he kind of gets the shame out of us, or when he kind of gets us over our pride, it also starts to change the way that we view other people, doesn't it? See, when Jesus changes the way that we view ourselves, we start to think of those other people, them over there. We stop thinking less of like, those people are better than me. Or we stop thinking, those people are less than me. Those people need to get their act together. Or we stop thinking, man, I sure wish I could get my act together. We stop thinking of other people that way and we actually start seeing other people as image bearers of God who are in need of his mercy. We start seeing our neighbors or our coworkers that way. Another image bearer of God who's in need of his mercy. Maybe we start to see our spouse that way when, when our spouse is maybe kind of you know, struggling a little bit in one of those seasons. They're an image bearer of God just like me in need of mercy. We start to see ourselves differently too. We start to see, see ourselves not as someone who has it all together, but as someone who has been a recipient of grace upon grace upon grace. Do you see how the gospel changes us? Do you see how when we let Jesus change the way we view ourselves, it changes our relationships, it changes the way we live? Do you see our need for the gospel? What a gift it is to have a Savior that has come for sinners, religious sinners and irreligious sinners, and he says, come and be my disciple. See your need, I'll meet your need. Come, follow me. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you this morning for your word that reminds us so clearly about who it is that you truly are. It's so easy for us to misrepresent you. It's so easy for us to misread you. It's so easy for us to be told by others who you are and what you're like. And so we thank you for your word that shows us 
who you are, that Jesus has come in grace and truth, that he is the word made flesh, that you speak to us about who you are clearly through the Son. And Lord, we acknowledge and we admit that we are sinners in this room this morning, that we are people who are soaked in shame, and and thank you that you've come to get us out of shame. We admit to you that we are people who are proud, that have um, made our identity in our own strength and our, and our own wisdom that we see ourselves too highly and we thank you that you've come to humble and bring and turn and bring mercy to the proud lord as we turn to you in a moment of response this morning holy spirit i pray that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our hearts so that we worship you lord as we consider your table as we consider our giving that you would move in this room that you would minister to us that you would lift us up lord into your presence In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.